Heavenly Father, once again, we come to you and thank you for all of your gifts. We thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that you gave him to us when we were your enemy and that he died for us and that he was raised from the dead. You raised him from the dead on the third day. We thank you for the grace gift of salvation by faith. We thank you, Father, that by simply believing in your son, our Savior, died for our sins and was raised from the dead, whosoever shall believe in Jesus Christ will never perish but have eternal life. Father, this morning we do want to bring to mind the needs of the saints, both in our congregation and around the country and around the world. We pray for the persecuted church. Father, we pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct us in our thoughts and concentration as we continue to hear your word. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to everybody. Now, I'm going to, uh, we do have a few um, announcements this morning. That's me. First one. Whoops. Rich Freeman from Chosen People Ministries will be joining us in two weeks, Sunday, September 18th. Uh, he is, of course, um, uh, works with the Jewish people, evangelizes them. Also, particularly his job is to work with, ch- with churches to train us and to give us an awareness and an understanding and an empathy so that we, too, when we have opportunities, may witness to the Jewish people and pray for them especially. Things are heating up on the mission field. I want to just give you a couple of pieces of information. Pastor Kingsley, we just learned this week that he will be um, in the West Indies from November 1st to the 15th, 2022. He's specifically is going to go to Trinidad and Tobago. He uh, let me know a little bit about why he's going and what's going to happen there. Um, he was there earlier, and he said that he noticed that there's a more and more of an influence of Hinduism and voodoo and oriental religion in most parts of the West Indies. I didn't know this, but there was a large contingent of people from India that about a century ago that came there, um, when, when more than a century now, when England uh, outlawed slavery in, their, in all of their lands, then, then people from India came to work in the field for wages. And because of that, there's a Hindu influence, and um, and that's not good. They have an 85-foot Hindu god statue, okay, uh, in Trinidad, for example. So second tallest one outside of India. The majority of Christian churches are charismatic. So we ask that you would pray that when the word of God would be used to turn the hearts of Trinidadians to him by faith alone in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Kingsley thanks us for our encouragement and our assistance over the years. Let's pray for him, but let's also support him in any way that we can. (coughs) Missionaries always need financial support. If you choose to help Kingsley, just in your giving, please indicate that so we know. (coughs) Secondly, uh, our friend Pastor Adams in India, (coughs) as as many of you know, he's working with... um, lepers in his area and uh we actually helped um by by providing resources for them to get medicine that's needed for them as well as blankets well now what he's doing is he is setting up a what's what he's calling a grace leprosy home what it is is the fact that there are elderly uh, and abandoned couples who once they come out of the hospital have nowhere to live and so he's he is setting this up um, it's, uh, let me give you a little information about it. Um, they're, 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 they're getting ready for 30 residents. The, the costs are three things, rent, meals, and utilities. It's a monthly need, which is different from what we usually do. But uh, we, what we've decided to do, the elders have decided to do is to open this up to all our members. Those of you that, that are willing to commit for, for the time being, to a monthly support in some manner or fashion. The total is about $900. You know, when you divide it by 30 residents and 30 days in the month, that's really a dollar per person per month. So it's, did I do that math right? I think I did. Three times three is nine. Yeah. 
Um, so as always, when whenever we have a need presented to us, it's incredible the number of people we can help for a fairly reasonable amount of money. A dollar a day, right? But I mean, uh, so but when you do thirty residents, thirty days, it's nine hundred a month. And uh, I don't know whether we'll be able to do all of that, but we're going to do as much as we can, as much as you allow us to do. The church also will be providing our own um, funding to, to to help with that. Now, I would I would ask you that you wouldn't just simply take what you're giving now and move it over. All right, that's cheating. <laughs> you know, when it comes to supporting the needy, uh, Paul in Second Corinthians says that we are to give beyond what we normally would in order to support that. It's a bit of a sacrifice from people who have so much less than we do. So again, I want you to continue praying for all these people, for Chosen People Ministries, Rich Freeman, or Pastor Kingsley and his missionary activity, and for Pastor Adams, who is setting up now this Grace Leprosy Home. Again, for this, for the elderly and the abandoned who have nowhere to go when they leave the hospital, there they still need a lot of support um, because they will be um, they won't be out of the woods with leprosy for over a year, maybe two. Okay, let's begin. The title of today's message comes from the Gospel of John, chapter eleven, verses twenty-eight to thirty-seven. I'd ask you to please turn to chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight at this time, and we will begin. John chapter 11, verse 28. If you if you use a ribbon to mark where we've been, that should be right where we were last time. Shouldn't have moved a bit. There's a reason for that, and we'll see it this morning. John chapter 11, verse 28. Oh, right, unless you come on Thursday night. But So everybody, we're going to take a collection and give buy Jack another ribbon. So you can have one for Thursday and one for Sunday. All right. John chapter 11, verse 20. By the way, at the end of service today, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. I want to say actually one thing about that is that we make it really convenient for people by providing the Internet. Sometimes uh, folks that are local can get into a bad habit of always using that rather than coming here. And I I mentioned that today because really specifically with the Lord's Supper. We're to gather together in person if we can. So I would encourage those um, who are local uh, to please, if possible, I know that things come up, but if possible, please join us every week, but especially on the Lord's Supper Sundays. Okay, with that, let's begin. John chapter 11, verse 28. When she, Martha, had said this, she went away and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to Jesus. Now, Jesus has not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they didn't. They honored her privacy and realized that Martha had talked to her privately. No, that's not what happened, right? What happened? They all want to go with them, with her. One can imagine that since Jesus has sent this message secretly, he probably was trying to avoid that, okay, at least for the moment. But in any event, Mary gets up quickly, goes to Jesus. The, 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 the crowd of mourners that was with her in her house also gets up. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, Lazarus. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? By the way, there's a lesson there in verse 37. And it's this. No matter how many times the Lord Jesus performed a miracle, people still questioned him and criticized him. Because it's not the miracle. 
it's the it's the understanding the meaning behind it that this this person really is who he says he is right that he's god the son in human flesh the christ the messiah the one who is the savior of the world if you don't understand that you can see all the miracles you want it's never going to really hit okay that's the purpose okay so here we have mary now joining jesus and he still hasn't come to their house yet and she immediately falls at his feet and starts weeping. And Jesus is really moved. We saw that Greek word the last time we were together, that he, that he was agitated, that, his, that he, had, he was emotional. The thing about Mary, oh, the thing about Mary is that she's going to help us with the title of today's message, which is, What is Man? What is Man? We're going to see this morning that that question is actually comes from Psalm 8, which we will go to this morning. We're asking this question because of this. Mary had a special relationship with Jesus in his humanity, in his humanity. When you think about her sister, Martha, Martha, of course, was very organized, very, very reasonable. She, she saw Jesus as who he is in terms of the Christ, the son of God. He who has come into the world. But I want you to notice that in those, especially in the, the second and third of those, Son of God, he who has come into the world. It's an acknowledgement of his deity and his lordship. Mary, on the other hand, has a special intimate relationship with Jesus in his humanity. And, and that's different. And um, this passage that we're in now is one of the most uh, clear passages in all the Gospels of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Because he was agitated by seeing others suffering. He was actually angry. We'll see. We saw this last time. He was angry at death, at suffering. And the one who had who had uh, hatched the plan so that the human race would fall and then be a, a human race that would be that would be subject to death, that would be sinful, that all of creation was corrupted. And all of that comes back to a temptation by one creature, Satan. He was really angry at him. But Mary actually appears three times in the Gospels. Two of those appearances are here in the Gospel of John. Two of those appearances also find her in the same place at the feet of the Lord. That's, that's emphasized. That, 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 that she, she went to the, to the feet of the Now, why, why is that significant in our context? Because it's clearly orienting to his very body, understanding that that his feet are the same feet that are going to be nailed to the cross. I mean, she may not have understood that. We do. So it's an expression of that relationship to his humanity. We'll see this again in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John when she anoints his feet. Let's go to that passage now. Well, let's go to that passage now, even though it's not here. It's John chapter 12, verse 3. John chapter 12, verse 3. Just go to the next chapter, verse 3. This is the same Mary. Jesus had come back after he had a small, uh, a short period of rest. He comes back to Bethany. He has a great, they, they offer him a great meal. And at that time, Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, is there. And, and, and Mary comes in, and what's the first thing she does is what follows. Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Can you see the human element really coming to, to the, in view here? Her hair, part of her human body, his feet, part of his human body, a gesture of compassion and respect and love, wiping her his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And in our passage this morning, in chapter 11, we've already seen that Jesus sees Mary weeping. He becomes deeply troubled in his spirit, agitated. He was troubled over the sadness and the suffering and the grief and angry as well, angry at death, angry at the one who had the power of death. We come face to face with the humanity of Jesus Christ here in chapter 11 and in chapter 12. 
Now, let's think for a moment about the humanity of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that's going to be our, our point by which we're going to branch into that question of the day. What is man? When we say that Jesus is human, what are we saying? Right. It comes back to who man is. We're going to have a short study on that. We're going to begin today. Jesus is the perfect man. Why is he perfect? Well, he's perfect because he never sinned. But as we saw last time, he still was mortal when he came the first time. I mean, he could die. I'm going to emphasize that point a little bit. But he's the perfect man. He's human, but perfect. He's perfect, never sinned. As well, he's fully God. God, the fullness of God dwelt in the body of Jesus Christ. Perfect man, fully God. There's no other person in the universe that is that, both human and God. And in the face of the death of his friend Lazarus, he was troubled and agitated. He wept. See, to be troubled and agitated is to be human, right? He wept. That is a human thing that we do in the face of suffering. He saw his friends, Martha and Mary, grieving, suffering, and he wept about it. He railed against death, which is a very human thing to do. So one thing that all human beings have totally in common is the fact that we are going to die, except if we're in the rapture generation. So he railed against that. He knew why. He, he was displaying in every way what it means to be human. As we know from other passages in the Gospels, he was human in every other way as well. He was born of a woman. The Bible emphasizes that. We see that in the Gospel of Luke. We see, we see this in the book of Galatians. It's emphasized he was born of a woman. Only a human being is born of a woman, but a special human being who's also the son of God. He grew up. He grew. He grew from a baby to a man. He had to eat and drink just like we all do. He, of course, had the body of a human being. He had eyes and ears and fingers and toes and a brain and tear ducts and a heart that beat it, that beat just like ours. And he was tempted in all things also as we are. The one thing that made him different was that he was without sin. But even though he was without sin, he faced the consequences of the fall of man. We saw this last time as well. When Adam when Adam sinned directly against the command of God, the whole human race fell at that moment, became corrupted, became dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus, that never happened to him, of course, but the consequences of the fall he did experience. He was facing death. He was facing hunger. He was facing anger and hatred on the part of other people. He dealt with all of that. But most importantly, he was mortal. He was a human being just like us who could die. And, and that's significant. It's very significant. Because while it's the one thing that all human beings fear at some level anyway, particularly unbelievers, the, 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 the fact that Jesus could die is the most amazing good news ultimately for us. Because by dying, as we know, he took our sins in his body on the cross. He defeated Satan. And all the works of Satan. He could die and he did die. And when he died, he did amazing things in that death. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what do we, what do we bring into remembrance every time? The death of the Lord. We'll be doing that today. But when we say that Jesus is human, what exactly does that mean? In other words, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? We're saying that we share humanity with Jesus Christ. Let's talk. We're going to look at what is humanity? What does the Bible say about being human, about what God created, who God created when he created man, about the story of man through the Bible, about how how what man became was not what God originally designed and desired for man to be. And then but but then but then there's another stage, as it were. When Christ comes. So you have you have man created, right? In in a sense perfect, not as perfect as Jesus, but perfect, and then fell. And that's another kind of man. It's not the same kind of man that was in the garden. Fallen man, dead in his trespasses and sins, unbelieving, hateful, 
self-centered and all those things that we that we know are a result of the fact that Adam fell. Well, what did God do? God actually brought into the world another kind of human, Jesus Christ, as we've just seen, unique in, in, in those ways of unique in the fact that he was he would never sin and unique in the fact that he was the son of God. But this is a fundamental question. It's a fundamental question for every human being. As a matter of fact, the very desire to want the answer to that, the very capacity to find the answer to that is one of the hallmarks of being human, interestingly enough. Animals don't don't walk around saying, my dog doesn't walk around saying, what does it mean, rough, rough, to be a dog? Rough, rough, rough. He just is a dog. Isn't conscious of it. Doesn't ask this question. Doesn't have the desire to know. Doesn't have the capacity to know. That's a human quality. So we ended with that question last time, and we're going to pick things up this morning at that same point, and we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark at this moment. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. I actually used the the equivalent passage in the Gospel of Luke last time, so let's see how Mark describes this encounter that Jesus had where this subject comes up. What does it mean to be human? Mark chapter 12, verse 28. I want you to concentrate on this because we're going to look at the elements that that, that are mentioned about being human in this in, in the command, the great one of the great commands of the Bible. Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came. And heard them arguing. Others had been arguing. And he recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? What commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is here. By the way, notice the first part of this commandment. What is it? Here. Here. That's first. In the book of Isaiah, we're seeing where we are in chapter 46 and particularly 46, that that the Lord said, you have to listen to me again. If you don't listen to the Lord, you'll never know anything else, right? You will never answer that question about what it means to be human unless you listen to God, who designed, who dreamed up humanity, designed what what human beings were going to be and created us. We have to listen first. No, there's no a commandment really doesn't come into play until somebody listens to it. Right. I mean, as parents, we understand that perfectly well. A lot of times the problem parents have with kids isn't so much that they're disobedient. It's that they ignore us. Right. We have to listen for us. What. So, again, Jesus says, he says, the man at the scribe asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? You gotta wonder, by the way, about the motivations of somebody who would ask that. See, he probably just wanted to show how smart he was and think that maybe he knew better than Jesus. I mean, a human motivation here. But it gave Jesus an opportunity here, a great opportunity. Of course, he took advantage of it. Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, and notice what comes next. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. Hear and recognize that there is one God, one Lord, and it's the God of Israel. Verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Has anybody ever fulfilled that command? Yes. One one person only, Jesus Christ. All of us fall short. And this is where, you know, the arrogant Christian will put themselves here and they'll say, I think I'm close. Right. I think I, I think I love the Lord a lot. You know, I don't know about that strength part, but I'm working on it. You know, and so the idea of trying to do things according to the you know, perfection of the law, that's one of the temptations of mankind. But we can never. All you got to do is read Romans 7 and see what Paul is saying. I'm a wretched man. I hear the command of God. I want to, but I can't. Right. That's part of being human as well. By the way, even as a Christian, 
we still have not yet achieved this point. So don't think that the idea of because we're believers in Christ and have the spirit indwelt, we're on our way as Christians, but we're not there yet either. All right. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and you shall love the Lord your God. By the way, this was the original design, by the way. Okay, when we think about why did God create the human race, it was so that the human race would do this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What do they have in common? Very simple. Love. Love. We were created to love God and we were created to love one another. Now, that may be not so obvious, but what one of the things that man needs is companionship, fellowship. That's why the Lord created the woman. Right. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Well, he did that so that they could love one another. They would have intimate fellowship and love. Well, all of that was broken up and, and corrupted by the fall of man including our heart, our soul, our mind, and our bodies. And our ability to love also. Not only now do we have the ability to love as fallen creatures, we have the ability to hate. So not only do we have the, the capacity to love our God and understand that there's one God, but we also can worship idolatry. And we can be self-centered and worship ourselves. So there's a great corruption. The point is, is that this was this is God's design for the human race. We can learn a lot about what it means to be human in this one passage alone. Let's look about let's look at that now. Hero Israel. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. You shall love the Lord. With all your with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. So what is this telling us? Well, first of all, and sometimes we miss this, but to be human is to know there's a God. Again, dogs don't know there's a God. I, I know that I know what people say. Well, you know, dog spelled backwards is God. You know, well, it is in Hebrew and it isn't in Greek. So put that out of your mind. Right. Animals don't know there's a God. Humans have now listen to this, have the capacity to know God. As a matter of fact, Humans do know there is one God. Now, you might say, well, then why are all these false religions? Why are there atheists? Right. Why do some people worship Hindus, Hinduism, which has all of these different gods with a little G? Right. Why do the Muslims worship Allah? That's not the one God either. Right. Why do some people worship animals and the earth, Mother Earth and so forth? That's not the one God either. Well, they know there's a God. But as Romans one tells us. They choose not to recognize him. They choose not to recognize him. They turn away from the one God. Doesn't mean they don't know he's there. Don't buy the lie. What is what is the what does God say about the atheist? Does he say that, you know what, the poor atheist, he just didn't have the capacity to know God. What does he call the atheist? Fool. What is a fool? Right. Somebody who goes willy nilly and pays no attention to what's most important in life. So they know there's a God, but they choose to ignore him. But to be human, the way that God designed us is to have the potential anyway to know, to know this God. That's first and foremost, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's first. That's primary. To, to be human, that's our question. What does it mean to be human? It's to have the potential to get to know God. It's have the tremendous potential to understand that there's a, there is a God who created everything, but but also that He's revealed Himself and He's He's let us know who He is and He's given us the ability to have a relationship with Him and not only that, but to know things about Him, to know His His might and His omnipotence, His power and the fact that He knows all things and that He's totally holy and righteous. He's totally just. There's injustice in the world of fallen man. But don't blame God for that because he's totally just. And we have the ability to know those things. But only if we what? Hear, oh, John, hear, right? 
if we hear about him, then we can get to know him. And when we get to know him, we will worship him. Why? Because we will come to an understanding that there's nobody else in all of this universe that's worthy of worship. Once you understand who God is, that he created everything, no more do you want to worship creation. How about worshiping the one that created it all? That makes more sense, doesn't it? So and once you understand that he created us, and not only that, but he loves us, and that even when we fell and we're corrupted and worthless and dead in our trespasses and sins and, and corrupt, and every part of us was affected by the fall, our minds, the Bible talks about the fact that we have a corrupt mind, a, a wretched mind, right? It talks about the fact that our heart is, is a lying heart and a deceived heart and so forth. Nevertheless, he continues to love us. And we and now he says, I'm going to rescue you. Once you understand that that's the kind of God you have, you don't want to worship Allah, who is just distant and tells people to kill each other. You don't want to do that anymore. You want to worship the God who loves you and the God who gave his only son for you and has mercy on you. You're not to worship anybody else once you know that and you're in your right mind. So a lot of people aren't. So the first thing of all to be human, really, is to know there's a God, one God, and to come to worship him. By the way, when we talk about worshiping God, not only is that a part of being human as originally designed, but it's also what we call the human spirit. The reason that we that there is a human spirit, because unbelievers don't have this yet, is so that man can communicate and have a direct relationship with God. It's an immaterial part of us. What do I mean? It's not part of our body. Nobody can see it, right? But it's but for those who, have, who are capable of having this kind of relationship with God, to not only know who he is, but to find out all that he has done, to be able to worship him, you need a human spirit for that, okay? So that's part of being a believing human, all right? But then he also says, right, in verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God. You see, to be human is not only to know there's a God, but to be loving. To be human is to be capable of loving. I say that because this is the original design. Right? He made us capable of loving. We don't always do that, but we're capable of it. Now, we have a need also. One of the things that I find really interesting about God's original creation of man is that he created us with needs. I find that kind of interesting. Why? Because you might think, like, we think of needs, we usually think of that as weakness. I really wish I didn't have a need for anything, right? Because then I guess I'd be perfect or I guess I could do all kinds of great things. Yeah, well, that's what Satan thought, (laughs) You know, I'm going to do without God. I don't have any needs, right? That's what the Laodicean church thought. I'm in need of nothing. Well, that's, that is not part of the design of being human, right? We have a lot of need, and God created us to have needs. One of them was a need to be loved. That is not weakness. That's what we were created to be, a need to love others. That's, that is, it's a need, but it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a thing. That's one way in which we reflect who God is, actually. But to be human is not only to, have to know there's a God and be able to worship him and to be capable of loving. It's also to have a heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. None of us can do that yet. Don't kid yourself. Don't think, well, Mother Teresa loved God with all her heart. No, she didn't. She didn't even know who he was. Don't don't kid yourself and say, you know what? I'm one of those who loves God with all my heart. You do? Well, you know what? If you do, you you would have you would have laid down your life for your friends already. Right? If you do, you would have him as a number one priority. Every decision you would make would be according to his will. Well, I don't think that describes me. I don't think it describes you. I don't think it describes anybody except Jesus Christ. But we have a heart. What what does it mean to have a heart? Well, a heart is a part of us that loves and desires. God created us with desires. See, we hear that word now, 
And we, we, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted, we hear desires and immediately maybe our minds go to things that are illicit. You know, I have a desire for money. I have a desire for sex. I have a desire. Yeah, well, those things have all been corrupted. But don't think that because desires are now corrupted that God didn't give them to us. He did. Right. He desired us. To have the things that were in the garden, for example, he desired Adam to have a, a helpmate. Uh, he he well, so desires are part of being human, and it's the heart that has these desires. Not only that, but a heart—it's the heart that makes moral judgments. You see, we we create—he created us with the capacity to judge between good and evil. He he gave us with the capacity to be discerning, to have a conscience. But not only to make those judgments, but then to, to, to make decisions based on those, to make to make choices. And see, that's where I say all of us fall short of loving God with all our heart, because not every one of our decisions and choices reflects the fact that we love God, that we put him first, that we that he's number one and really only priority. None of us is there. We're on our way. We're on our way to that new heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And what's next? With all your soul. With all your soul. What does it mean to have a soul? What's different between having a heart and having a soul? To be human is to have a soul. First and foremost, you know what? The soul is our identity. Our soul makes us who we are in, in large respect. Or at least identifies who we are. Right? It's identification. It's as, it, is that, it's as it were where we live, right? We live, we show we're in our bodies, but first and foremost, we have a soul. That's where, that's really authentically who we are. It's also the seat of our natural life. But the soul, like the spirit, is immaterial. You can't see it. You can't see it. We all have one. And the soul is the seat of our natural life. You see, you're given a soul when you're born. Your soul leaves the body when you die. But as long as you have natural life, the soul is the seat of that life. As a matter of fact, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, the soul sometimes stands for the whole person. Like, for example, when they say many souls were saved, right? It means the person was saved. So the soul is really the person in terms of our identity, our identity. Not only that, but if we think about it, while we're here on planet Earth, we have to like be in relationship. We have to be aware of other people. We have to be aware and interact with the things of this world and of this Earth. Well, it's the soul that does that. The soul interacts with the things of this Earth. I, I, I of course, I'm, I'm actually contrasting that with the human spirit. So you can think about it, right? We have a soul and a spirit. Sometimes those get confused. Some people want to say they're the same thing. Well, the Bible doesn't. You know, the Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Lord's word it can cut through anything and, dis, and, and separate soul and spirit. So they're two different things. Our soul interacts with the things of this earth. Our spirit communes directly with God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All your mind. To be human is to have a mind. To be human is to think, to have an intellect. Again, this, this, this makes us different from all the other creation, right? We have a mind. We have an intellect. What does it mean when you have an intellect? It means you can learn things. You can think. You can create. You can use language to communicate with one another, right? We have a mind that does that. Our mind has the ability to learn language, to to put together sentences, to communicate, to not only have thoughts, but to communicate those thoughts, to not only communicate thoughts, but to have new information that comes into the mind and then can figure things out and have new thoughts and to listen to the thoughts of other people. When the, the, the mind actually takes in a lot of sensory information, right? We think of it as the brain, but I'm talking about the mind, the immaterial part. Right. The mind actually, you know, look, dogs have brains that doesn't make them human. The mind 
is what makes us human. Our capacity to think, our capacity to reason, our capacity to create. Now, at the end today, we're going to see a passage that's going to lead us into next week on this whole question of what it means to be human. And we're going to see that, again, thinking about God's original design and how he originally created us, he created us in his image and his likeness. We're going to spend some time on that. But for this morning, I just want you to, to realize that one of that, what that meant included the fact that we would have a mind, that we would have an intellect, that we would be able to think, able to reason, able to learn, able to create. Human beings are creative. I have, you know, I have a piano in my living room. I've never seen my dog composing a new song on that piano, right? Well, humans can do that, right? Humans are creative, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Right. Sometimes it's neutral. Sometimes the human being had had the ability to figure out the Lord's principles in physics and create an atomic bomb. Now, atomic energy is good. Atomic bomb is bad. See, but that capacity of being a creative person is what God designed us to be. And it's in our mind. And of course, use language. Language is another thing. You know, originally there was only one language, by the way. Now, God designed us that way. And you might say, well, why did he do that? Very simply, so that we could all communicate with one another. But what happened? Mankind corrupted it. Mankind said, you know what? We're going to use the ability to create and the ability to speak with one another and try to be as good as God, to try to be right up there with him. That's the Tower of Babel, folks. And then God said, you know what? They're corrupt. I'm going to show them the consequences of being corrupt in the use of language. I'm going to give them all kinds of language, and they're going to walk around confused. You want to be, you want to, you want to corrupt what I have? Fine, here you go. This is the consequences. This is the wages of doing that. But He gave us the capacity to have language, so we can communicate with one another. It's in our mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, with all your strength. To be human is to have strength. And here, that is that is the strength that is in our bodies. To have strength, to have the ability to, to do things in the world that express our thoughts. But not only that, our body has needs, right? That's where a lot of our needs are, to eat. And you might say, well, is that a weakness? Is that is that a result of the fall? Well, absolutely not, because the Lord created trees that were good for every kind of food for nourish our bodies. By the way, he also created those trees in order that we would have an ascetic sense. We would recognize beauty and appreciate it. You have a body. Body has needs. It's the, by the way, in, in, in contrast to the heart and the soul and the mind, which are immaterial, the body is material, Right. It's made up of the dust of the earth. That's where it came from, right? So that's the material part of us. The body has needs. It has needs for food and for drink and for so forth. The body now, not just the heart, but the body. But it also gives us capabilities, doesn't it? We have capabilities. You know, the original design was for us to present our bodies as a sacrifice to the Lord. You see it? And that was, of course, the, that was the design to use our bodies in a way that glorifies God. Well, does everybody do that? No. All right. As a matter of fact, this is an area where, again, even Christians uh, fall far, far short of that original design. But we have capacities, great, marvelous, miraculous capacities to move on our own, to embrace one another with these bodies, to exert strength and, and effort in pursuit of a worthy goal. Right. When, when Paul in chapter four of the book of Ephesians talks about our hands, he says, don't use them anymore for selfish reasons, but to use them to work. So you may have extra so that you may give to others. That's the design. Pursuit of a goal. Mind, heart, soul and strength. And I know you've been exerting a lot to be to be concentrating on this and you've been using your mind and your heart, your soul and your body. So I'm going to let you relax for a minute. <laughs> you know, sometimes we just need pictures to kind of sum it all up. 
I know that I know you might say at first blush, well, that's silly. I, I, Wizard of Oz, that's a kid's movie. I, you know, there's all kinds of problems with it. It was talking about the gold standard and all that stuff. Well, OK, fair enough. But remember, what did the scarecrow want? A brain. Well, that's the mind. What did the Tin Man want? A heart. I'll skip over Dorothy for a minute. What did the lion want? Courage, a heart, right? No, courage. Courage to body. What did Dorothy want to do? Go home, right? Well, in the, the home, the house is the seat of the soul, image-wise. So here you have it. Mind, heart, soul, and strength. All right. But unfortunately, just like the story of the fall of man, you see, somebody comes on the scene and tries to mess all of that up. And, of course, we have a green I don't know what it is with the color green, but we have a green witch that tries to do everything to corrupt and destroy. Who does that remind you? Well, you know the answer to that. You know the answer to that. Now, to be human is more than what we just talked about. Okay, but those are the basic elements to to, to, to have a human spirit, to have a human mind, human heart, human soul, human body. So this morning, we're going to embark on a short series that is all about answering this fundamental question. What does it mean to be human? Or as Psalm 8 says, what is man? What is man? Please turn to Psalm 8 at this time. It's a fascinating subject in the Bible. Sometimes we, we take these things for granted. Sometimes we've been at passages so often that we, it sort of loses its miraculous nature. And, and we, need, we need sometimes a device to bring us back to some of that. So we're going to look at passages in the Bible through the lens of saying, what does this tell us about being human? Psalm 8. O Lord, our, our Lord How majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries. You make the enemy and the revengeful cease justice. When I consider your heavens, think of it. Think of it. Every once in a while, we ought to go out at night and just look up. And now we don't see as many stars as Abraham saw, but we can see a few. It's, it's amazing. It's wondrous to think about that. And, we, and to think about it's the work of the Lord's fingers. You know, and the fact that it's just the fingers tells you how easy it was for him to create all the stars. Just his fingers. Not even the muscles of his shoulder. He doesn't have them, but image-wise. The moon and the stars which you have ordained. When there's a when there's a lunar eclipse, when the, when the when the moon just disappears for a little while, it only does that because God set it up that way to be able to do that. Okay. When there's a solar eclipse, same thing. All right. Now verse four. All right. He's talked about God, His wondrousness, His His majesty, His splendor, the creation, and then in verse four, now the question: What is man? This is what God has done. Now, what is man? And he asks it in a very particular way. He says, what is man that you take thought of him? In other words, you created the stars. And here we have man on earth. It's, we're little. We're really little. Not only that, we're, we're corrupt. We fell. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. But we know he does. You see? That's part of being human is to, is to realize that God thinks about you. His thoughts outnumber the sands of the seashore for you. He cares for you. That's why we should cast all our cares on him, because he's the one who cares for us better than anybody. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown man with glory and majesty. 
and you make him to rule over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't describe anybody I know today. In other words, I'm not crowned with glory and majesty. Trust me. All right. I don't rule over all the works of God's hands. The human race no longer does. Okay. Why? This is describing God's original design for the human race. His original design. All right. I want you to see it that way. You have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. By the way, this talks about the dignity of man, the glory of man. All right. This is why, by the way, when we think about being an American, right? Do you know what the most, the thing that we, that was really most spectacular about what the founders realized? They realized that man has a dignity because of how God created us. By the way, if you lose that, you lose everything about being human. Think about it. That's why there's, so, there's such corruption in, in this world. That's why people can say that, you know, we can, we can do what we want. We can murder people. We can say, if you're too old, you know what, why don't you kill yourself? We can, we can um, abuse our bodies, right? We can do all kinds of things. We can, we can say that no longer is man more important than the clouds and global warming, right? All of that is because people no longer understand that we have been created in the image and likeness of God. And for that reason, and that reason alone, we have dignity in any event. O Lord, our God, verse 9, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8. Now, it's interesting because Psalm 8 is also cited in the New Testament. By the way, it's funny in a way, interesting, that it's without attribution. All right. The writer of Hebrews Basically, we'll, we'll see this in a moment. It says, you know, it's been written somewhere. And he cites Psalm 8. You might think, well, why didn't he say, I don't know. You know the Lord sometimes just wants. I'll tell you one of the things I do think is that um, you get to the point where you understand that it's all God's word. And that whether we call it Psalm 8 or Psalm 50, or, it that doesn't really matter. What matters is that you, you know that in the word of God and you honor it and you love it. Because we're going to see in just a moment in Hebrews how how this passage is taken from Psalm 8, where it talks about God's original design and that it is brought into who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the perfect man. All of these things that are said here are not true about us. They are true about Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Hebrews has something in common with the Gospel of John. And that is that, for first of all, um, one of its great subjects, and it's in chapter 2, where Psalm 8 is quoted, is the humanity of Jesus. Just like in the Gospel of John, as we're seeing, it, it focuses on the humanity of Jesus. But both of these books, John and Hebrews, do something else. They are perhaps the best place in the Bible where both the deity and the humanity of Christ are presented side by side. So you can clearly see that he's both. John does that. I hope you've seen that. Even in chapter 11, we see that he talks about the fact that I am the resurrection. I am God. And Martha says, you are this God's son, right? Deity. And then right after that, we see him weeping, humanity. And book of Hebrews does the same thing, presents the deity and the humanity of Christ side by side. In that order. All right. Um, we're going to have to stop here because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. We're going to pick things up right here. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews. We're going we're to first refresh our memories a little bit about the Gospel of John and how the deity and the humanity of Jesus are side by side. Then we're going to go to Hebrews. And we're going to see the same thing in chapter one, the deity, chapter two, the humanity. So we have a lot of great things in store. And at this point, I mean, we're going to we're going to uh, 
close off our message this morning and prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But before we do that, we're going to sing a song. And while we do that, I'm going to need the communion elements at some point. I think, unless unless they're hidden. Yeah, no. All right, we got an next one. Thanks. Thank you. All right, if we could all stand at this time, and we're going to sing a song in preparation for, for bringing into remembrance the death of the Lord. Hebrews 2.9 But we do see him made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting for God the Father, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, you and I as believers in Christ, to perfect the author of their salvation, Jesus Christ, through sufferings. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Why did the Son of God become flesh? Why did the Son of God add perfect humanity to his undiminished deity? Why did he humble himself? He came from heaven in majesty and came down to earth in the form of a slave, human being, human nature. Why did he do all that? He did it so that he could die for us. The immortal one, God, the son, took on mortality, a body able to die so that we mortals could take on immortality. And not only that, but as we see here in verse 17, the fact that he was made like his brethren in all things, humbled himself as a man as well as remaining God. The word became flesh. He was made like his brethren in all things for a purpose, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. A high priest is a mediator between man and God in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Lord Jesus Christ became the mediator between God and man. This was what Job was desiring and didn't think he could ever find when he was struggling with the implications of losing everything and what God, why God did it. And in chapter 9 of the book of Job, this is what he says. He says, for God is not a man that I'm, as I am, that I may answer him that we may go to court together. There's no umpire between us, between me and God, who may lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. Well, Job pleaded for an advocate, and Jesus became that advocate. He's the umpire that Job hoped against hope existed. That's why in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, we read, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, and all men to come to the knowledge of the truth about God and Jesus. For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus, God the Son, had to become a man so also he could be the mediator between God and men. The perfect mediator between God and men is the God-man, who Jesus is. And, and, and he's a man, and Paul emphasizes that. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we bring into remembrance the death of the Lord. We actually, we, we actually honor and worship the fact that he became human in a body that was mortal and could die, and that he understood that the sins of the world would all be placed on him, and that by dying, 
immortal, immortal, because he could die. He gave all who believe in him the power to become immortal, the children of God with eternal life. That's why he took flesh and blood, that he might taste death for us. The man Christ Jesus did this. For I received from the Lord also that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. This is my body, which is for you, Jesus said. My body, do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, you and I proclaim the Lord's death. It is now something to be proclaimed because of how Jesus transformed death into life and gave us the opportunity to have eternal life. We proclaim that death until he comes. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning for helping us to gather together as a family, hear from your word, consider you as the source of everything, our creator, our designer, giving us a mind, a heart, soul, and a body, and as believers, a human spirit. We thank you, Father, especially that we could worship your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the one who took flesh for us, as the one who died for us, and when you raised from the dead. And we ask now, Father, that our increased understanding, which we, which we desire to have each and every time we gather and, and share the Lord's Supper together, that that understanding of his death would, would propel us forward to want to and be able to present the truth of the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to a world that desperately, though they know it not, needs to hear that, have the opportunity to hear that and the opportunity to believe. Thank you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. As we close this morning, just remember we have Bible study every week. Thursdays at 6.30. We come here and we also have it on Skype. Remember the mission field today. Remember Pastor Kingsley going to the West Indies in November. Remember Pastor Adam setting up that home for lepers. Remember that we can participate in that. You know, we're not all evangelists, but we all can participate. In fact, it is a duty of the body of Christ to participate in the priest in the presentation and the preaching of the gospel. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that, first of all, by praying. But secondly, and I would say every bit is important by presenting our bodies in some way. Our, some of our strength, some of our, our work can then be redirected towards that need. It's both. Okay. So please consider that. All right, let's close. Heavenly Father, thank you once again. Thank you on this Sunday morning that you allow us to have this time, if no other time, to think about you and just worship you and just hear good news and just be, be challenged and rebuked if necessary to reorient our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength to you so that we may present our bodies a living sacrifice. And we thank you for the opportunity to do that too. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.